again to Podiatry Today podcasts, where we bring you the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, Assistant Editorial Director for Podiatry Today. In this installment, we're talking about first MTPJ salvage surgery with Dr. Joshua Sabag and Dr. Zachary Cavins. Hopefully you caught the last episode where we will continue the discussion today, starting out with post-operative considerations in these cases. Both doctors are fellows of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons and practice in the state of Florida. We're so grateful to have you back to continue the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I think we left off last time at the end of the procedure, so why don't we kick off today by starting a little bit with post-op protocols. You know, for me, again, it's going to depend on the size of the void. So if this is simply just a patient who had a McBride and we're calling it a revision and now it's a primary fusion, but it's a revision surgery, then I would treat that as a primary arthrodesis and I would let them weight bear as tolerated in a boot as soon as the skin is healed. So really my only limit, limiting factor would be the soft tissues. So say 14, 21 days later, based on their biology, I'd let them weight bear in a boot. If it's a true revision where there's a fusion that was failed, extracted hardware, you know, whatever I needed to do to, to restore the first ray length, then I, I treat that a little different. So for that true revision with a spanning graft, um, that's going to be a minimum of six weeks. And I would probably introduce a full thread screw across it at some point, if I can, just from a real estate standpoint to add to stability, but I would still place uh, six weeks minimum on the patients for them to even commit to that type of timeline before I would let them wait bare. I differ a little bit. One of it's kind of typically for me based on age and what the demand of that patient is. If I've got that mid seventies grandma that's coming in that needs a revision that is minimally ambulatory. I'm, I'm letting them wait bare right off the table in a protective boot. I'm not having them go to the grocery store. I'm definitely telling them they need to kind of take it easy around the house, but uh, that's a little bit different than when I first started. I was a little more cautious early on. Patients teach you a lot of things over the years. And if my patient's younger, um, they are definitely more limited. Um, so if I have the 48-year-old patient that's kind of coming in or that you know mid-50s active person that you can tell they're just going to get after it no matter what, then I'm making them have a period of non-weight-bearing at least four weeks. Um, I want to have pretty good bony, you know, basically a start of some bony knit happening on that fusion mass before I let them kind of start to weight bear in a protective boot. And I really educate them on, you know, the bone biology and bone healing that really kind of goes on into that. And, you know, the benefits of, you know, stability and letting things kind of heal and the, the deleterious effects of motion, even with the attempt of fusion, you know, it can definitely happen. So I really kind of educate them as heavy as I can on that right there with Josh, though, where we completely agree. I'm putting any sort of graph spanning, uh, whether it's a special structural allograft, I do not let them weight bear at all until six weeks out. I want to make sure that that site is as you know solid as possible before I let them really do any sort of real activity based on x-ray findings and swelling and obviously skin, but you know, transition to shoe, uh, hopefully for the majority of people, you know, at that six week mark. And then for my graphs, somewhere between eight to 10, they're a little bit more swollen because they're down for a little bit longer, but usually eight to 10 is what I'm seeing um, to get them back into sneakers. So in what setting are the both of you usually performing these revision procedures, especially now that we're hearing more and more about cost effectiveness and cost consciousness across the surgical field? Has that affected your choices at all? Or tell me a little bit about that. I'm a hospital group employee. Um, so 100% of my surgeries today occur at a hospital facility. If I was doing a primary arthrodesis, then I would 
depending on insurance. And yeah, we could do them at ASCs previously. Anything that requires a graft is definitely going to need to go to the hospital from a cost perspective. The world that we're in now with cost-conscious ASC stuff, I think is, is a big deal. I do bring the vast majority of these outpatient. Now, I understand there's issues with Medicare folks, and we said the vast majority of these may be older. So if there's if there's a truly an older patient that's going to need a bulk allograft, then I'll bring that elsewhere if I can't get it done at the ASC. But more and more, I've, I've been doing them at the ASC, and I'm, I'm not a huge proponent of the biologics, and I'm not a huge proponent of buying into some of the mantra that there's donor site morbidity with autografts. So, you know, the, the calcaneus and the distal tibia are kind of right there for the taking. So I would just assume procure the bone and, and use the autograft and fill the allograft plug if needed to restore the length. But I, I would do this outpatient if I could try to avoid the unnecessary use of biologics. If you are using a bulk allograft or a structural allograft, are you using biologics then? Or are you just putting that graft in? I've done it both ways and I can't say it made a whole bit of difference. So I'm, I'm really leaning towards autograft. I would go to the calcaneus. There's good amount of literature that says that we can harvest enough bone from the dorsal calcaneus or the distal tibia. So yeah, I'm, I'm taking autogenous bone and mixing that as needed to back up the fusion site. What about you, Dr. Cavins? Are you using biologics at all? I am definitely using biologics when I'm using structural allograft that is upwards of eight to 10 millimeters. There are companies out there that make kind of a cup and cone shape um, that kind of allows me to kind of fit in, that kind of mirrors the head of what we're trying to do. Because a lot of us, when we do these fusions, are using cup and cone reamers or, you know, we're reaming these out. And so um, there are devices that kind of allow us to address that similar length issue to help restore the length of gray, but then also use a graft to kind of help get us there and not necessarily be reliant upon, say, posterior, superior, you know, lateral calcaneus to kind of just give you a, a more of a square-shaped graft. So whenever I'm using anything that's 8 to 10 millimeters in length in terms of those discs, then I am using biologics. I think that just as a really just to help stimulate some of that, whatever goes across that site. For the smaller ones, not as common. Uh, I guess it depends on kind of that patient and what those comorbidities are. But I would say more more frequently, especially now with the reamers and things that exist from that, put from the calcaneus that we're able to do, it's right there for the taking. And it adds three minutes to your procedure, which is the same time it takes to probably make half the stuff we're trying to make. So, you know, if you have a, a patient with a pretty good protoplasm and a good propensity to want to heal, then giving the patient their own, you know, ability to kind of do that, I think makes a lot of sense. It's more for me based on if I'm having to use one of those larger discs before I'm you know, pulling the trigger to use those orthobiologics. So do you think it makes sense to maybe lean towards a shorter allograft, even if the perfect toe parabola isn't achieved in a, in a salvage case? And then to that point, the lesser metatarsal osteotomies make sense in the same scenario? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could, I mean, I guess we could have that, you know, conversation about, you know, is is, is less more and then have a second incision. I mean, I could put the other side of that coin and now say, well, if I just restore the parabola, yes, it's a little more expensive, but now I haven't created a second or a third surgical site. What are those chances of those, you know, wilds going on? And now I've, I've increased, you know, more risk, you know, on those lesser metatarsal osteotomies as, as less risky as they honestly are, they're still, you know, now I'm creating additional incisions and, you know, putting in, you know, things there and, 
if you're drilling and you're using hardware, is there still a cost associated with that? Now, not on the magnitude, of course, of the orthobiologic, but it's, I wouldn't say it's not without it. If I'm doing an MTP fusion and I'm short, I'm, I'm putting a, I'm putting a, and I need the length, I'm, I'll put it there. Now, if, if I'm super short um, and I had one of these, not that, oh God, not that long ago where I was, I was short and I probably needed 18. It was bad. It was really bad. And it was, they were structurally short, I think, to begin with. And then they got an implant, so they're even shorter. And then I ended up doing subsequent wiles with that. When I think about the procedure as it, of itself and it's just in the entirety, typical revision, medial column, first MTP, I, I would say I'm, I'm probably not leaning towards going to something shorter and then doing additional procedures. And I think that's a patient conversation too. I mean, I think that's, hey, my, my problem is here. And I go, okay, that's great. But now, but I can fix this, but I also need to fix this and this as well. You have to have a patient that also wants to agree to that. Not that we can't explain that, not that we can't take the 10 minutes to do it and make them understand the parabola and lesser-mets arsalgia and those procedures. But I would say as a whole for me, I'm, I'm probably leaning more towards, you know, just addressing, addressing that primary issue if, if I can. And, and just one single setting on that one surgical site. So since plating seemed to be the consensus among all of us as far as uh, fixation choice, are there any particular pearls that you've come across in your work about using that type of fixation that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, definitely. So I, I think Rukas, who did a, a pretty good systematic review and one of the, the biggest issues, it was maybe near 8% or so, 7%, was malunion and a dorsal malunion is just a bad problem and subsequent IPJ flexion deformities that follow and all the other issues that, that can go on with a malunion. So, you know, for me, I looked at my own 40, my first 40, I think in private practice. And when I kind of was critical with my own work, I found that I had a, a, a low rate, but I did, when I was honest with myself, find myself with a little dorsal malunion sometimes. And I thought, of course, that I was doing a good job, but then I, I kind of evaluated it and I found that a small percentage of these patients were not necessarily complaining about their position, but that we were, they were somewhat malunited. It's all about the position. You know, this is like the, the buzzword. It's all about the position. And it's very, very easy to find yourself with, you know, the toe facing the nail plates north and, you know, transverse plane, we're, we're happy. There's no cigar sign, but then sure enough, your sagittal plane's off. Or, or vice versa, where other things are right. So it's, it's really difficult to get them all straight. So what I've trended towards anyway is kind of what Diorio's um, study put out. I, it might've been 2007 or so, but he, he did some, I think, pretty good work and evaluated the general position of the first ray. And if you take into account the first ray metatarsal declination angle, you really shouldn't have a plate probably more than maybe five degrees of dorsiflexion that puts the MTP in about 25 degrees of dorsiflexion with a five degree max extension on the plate. And, and I thought that was just really profound. And when you start to look at some of the manufacturers that we, of course, a lot of them have upwards of 10, 15, maybe even more uh, options. And I, I think that that's just allowing us to make this mistake. So I've pretty much gravitated towards a neutral plate. I do take down the dorsal condyles on the base, the proximal phalanx, as well as the metatarsal head with almost like a back brush technique. And, and that's allowed me to kind of countersink the plate, so to speak, also decrease the soft tissue tension when closed in that area. So I, I would say for me, it's five degrees max and I, I'm, I'm switching almost always to a neutral plate. 
if I do the biplanar approach, then I just have to be more critical of my work because I don't have that plate template, but the plate templates really help. So that's something that I think is, is important. I'm right there with you in terms of neutral plating. Zero degrees is kind of where I want to keep everybody. Some of the women that that come in, there's definitely concern about, you know, range of motion. And then can I go into my heels? And a lot of that just has to speak to patient expectation. Luckily for me in these scenarios, I'm, I'm the second or third person they're coming to. So I can go, look, you know, everyone else tried to give you what you were open for. And I'm going to give you something that doesn't hurt, or at least try to. I kind of lean that way. But, you know, going back to what we first even talked on, was that when you really look into literature, into the data about the outcomes of these procedures and the pain afterwards and how little it really is and how pleased these patients are, especially even when coming from arthroplasty then to arthrodesis, I think that that really kind of speaks to the, the procedure and, you know, you kind of just educate them on, on that and you spend a little bit of time on that to really help them understand and give them the why of what you're doing and I think once you kind of do that, that kind of helps guide those patients. So you can then, you know, as, as the surgeon that, that has the understanding of the pathophysiology and the pathomechanics that are going on, and then the subsequent mechanics that are there after you have intervened, I think that it really kind of helps, you know, aid in that. So for, for me, I, I definitely, I'm a huge fan of the, the zero plating. I'm a cup and cone reamer uh, person where I really try to maintain that more physiologic shape. I do, so I would say sometimes tend to leave the medial side of that proximal phalanx as a, almost like a landing zone as I am typically using a, a screw kind of going across there. And that screw orientation is from that distal medial to proximal lateral aspect. I really am trying to put the poster, you know, to the wall. I'm not really a fan of reversing that around and going, you know, putting the, the wall to the poster um, if I, as a, the analogy that we all like to give. So I kind of like the idea of taking that proximal phalanx and kind of putting it onto the, the first metatarsal head, I definitely have had times where I've had to, had to flip it. And even last week, I didn't have any space on the medial side. So I ended up actually making an inner space incision along the lateral side of the, of the first toe and was able to kind of put a screw that way. And that had pretty good success, but I, I definitely am more of a fan for that. So, but I do try to sometimes keep that medial flare, but definitely getting, you know, all that cartilage denuded, you know, following Glissane's principles and going back to, you know, early on in school and early on in residency and rotations, it's kind of, but hundred percent, it's all about position. You know, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that that toes up and the alignment's there. And that would really be the biggest thing that I, I really kind of try to think about. And a lot of these companies have foot plates and things like that to make sure that things aren't really elevated. So that's for me, I, before I start putting in my internal fixation and utilizing these templates, I, I do try to work on alignment. Um, and I work on that foot plate and bring that foot plate out or, you know, the, the lid off of one of your trays, just to make sure that your alignment is where you're wanting it to be. And when you load that foot, that there is purchase and that it's, you know, not sitting off the ground. Somebody mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts. Eccentric reaming. What have you encountered? What do you feel the impact is on these procedures? I, I think it's a really forward thinking way to address a bad problem. It's a little technical and it, it's not easy necessarily, but if we have the benefit of a cup and cone system, and we can do this with flat cuts, um, but we're kind of limited in how many planes we can adjust. So with the cup and cone system, and I think there's there, there may be a new article coming out in, in uh, the Fast Track Journal, actually, out of Minnesota that I was reading. There's some authors now who are talking about it. And I, I think some of us are probably doing it anyway, and now it's being published. But the idea of being able to correct a bony loss or, or correct a deformity 
in the way of the reaming allows us to do both sides and then almost reintroduce a more rectus position just because we're removing the deforming factors. So whether or not it's the metatarsal head or the phalangeal base or, or the combination, I think that it's a powerful tool. And if we pick the appropriate size reamer, we can actually correct the MTP overall. Yeah, I think that a lot of us, we look at it and we kind of do it without necessarily knowing that we're doing it. As we look for that alignment, the cup and curve reamers definitely give us a lot of flexibility to do a lot of that, but doing something that's eccentric outside of just MTP, right? You've got, you have another joint just distal to that and you got that IPJ. And so you can sometimes correct, I think, some interphalangeus that may exist there by doing that eccentric reaming. So you can correct a couple of problems with one swing. And that's maybe look a little bit different when, you know, when you start doing it to some of the people in the room, but, you know, when it comes out, they go, Oh, it looks pretty good. And you go, yep. And you I think that's part of just being you know, the surgeon that's in there too, is not necessarily is understanding one, what you're trying to accomplish, but also more of that art form that kind of feeds into surgery. So what other kind of challenges and hurdles do you feel are commonly encountered with revisional first MTP surgery? I would say the biggest hurdle would just be patient understanding um, and patient expectation. Providers, surgeons, they ultimately try to perform what they think is the right procedure. Things happen in surgery, complications are a known risk. You know, it's, it's not perfect. This isn't an easy bake oven. There's no cookbook. As much as we try to study and understand, things inevitably can happen. If they even select me to be their surgeon to do the revision, that there's still a possibility that things still may go wrong. You know, especially if we're talking about arthrodesis and as good as we think we are with fenestration and, you know, even if you want to bring in biologics and we're talking about all the different things that we add into these procedures, I think that the biggest thing that I would say up front that even from a non non-surgical perspective is, is patient understanding and it has to deal with the patient expectations are. I would say bony loss deformities, you know, you get into a situation where everything may, may look good, but AVN is a big one. Sometimes you, you miss an AVN on whether it's x-ray, you'll miss an AVN even on CT where it doesn't always pick it up. The, the structurally things may look there, but it isn't necessarily alive. MRI would be great to have, but with scatter, it kind of makes things, you know, hard to see obviously, right? By definition. So, so what do those soft tissues look like? What is the anatomy going on? What's happening with those osseous structures that are there? You know, do you have previous hardware? Do you have broken hardware? You know, what are those things you really have to start to encounter when starting to take on these revision surgeries and you're starting to kind of enter into that realm, just being prepared for the unexpected, kind of working that procedure through your head and, you know, making sure that your team is ready and making sure that you're, you know, if you're working with vendors, that your vendors are ready, you know, that they have what you think you may need and that you may encounter and, you know, they've got stuff available for you, you know, for the unexpected. Anything else that either of you would, would like to add about this topic? It sounds like there's still, you know, several episodes in the future that we could go into on various aspects of it, but is there anything specifically that you'd like to leave the audience with today? You know, you got to choose your patients wisely, obviously. And the most unpredictable factor is often biology. We can pick a patient with a bad problem and have a good plan, but uh, the times that I can think about that things didn't work out or are usually biologic things. So, you know, we can't put enough emphasis on workup and making sure these patients are at the point where they can heal a fusion. MTP is fairly reliable to heal, which is nice, but uh, the biology is a big challenge. So I would just 
encourage the biology evaluation and try and uh, over plan that part, you know, make sure that you're really good at that. And then the, the fixation choices, you know, not all the hardware is made the same. And I've, I've kind of leaned towards multiple small screws for a revision fusion versus you know, a handful of big screws. So although it may be stronger in appearance, I think that the rest of orthopedics has shown us that lots of periarticular screws are, are good for, for fractures and for fusions elsewhere in the body. And they seem to work well. So I've, I've kind of gravitated towards lots of points of fixation versus just a handful of big points of fixation for these revision cases. With these fusions, you know, the idea of vitamin D and calcium and supplementation, you know, is there a place? As we talk about biology, I mean, you have some of these patients, I've got great examples of terrible, terrible protoplasms that you're like, this is never going to work. And terrible situations of A1Cs that are really high, they end up doing great, you know? So, you know, I think that it's definitely an art. I think it's definitely an evolving science and always a changing science for all of us. So we do the best you can, what you have and educate your patients on what those expectations are and what those outcomes may be, and just kind of move forward and, you know, do good, do good work and go from there. Thank you so much to each of these docs for being with us today to talk more about this important topic. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes of Podiatry Today podcasts on Spreaker, podiatrytoday.com, and your favorite podcast platforms. <laughs>